Chapter One of Morton Hall by Elizabeth Gaskell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please contact LibriVox.org. From Household Words, a weekly journal, number one hundred and ninety-one, nineteenth of November, eighteen fifty-three. Morton Hall in two chapters. Chapter the First. Our old hall is to be pulled down, and they are going to build streets on the site. I said to my sister, Ethelinda, if they really pull down Morton Hall, it will be a worse piece of work than the repeal of the Corn Laws. And after some consideration, she replied that if she must speak what was on her mind, she would own that she thought that the Papists had something to do with it, that they had never forgiven the Morton who had been with Lord Monteagle when he discovered the gunpowder plot. For we knew that somewhere in Rome there was a book kept, and which had been kept for generations, giving an account of the secret private history of every English family of note, and registering the names of those to whom the Papists owed either grudges or gratitude. We were silent for some time, but I am sure the same thought was in both our minds. Our ancestor, a side-bottom, had been a follower of the Morton of that day. It had always been said in the family that he had been with his master when he went with the Lord Monteagle and found Guy Fawkes and his dark lantern under the Parliament House, and the question flashed across our minds. Were the side-bottoms marked with a black mark in that terrible mysterious book which was kept under lock and key by the Pope and the Cardinals in Rome? It was terrible, yet somehow rather pleasant to think of. So many of the misfortunes which had happened to us through life, and which we had called mysterious dispensations, but which some of our neighbours had attributed to our want of prudence and foresight, were accounted for at once, if we were objects of the deadly hatred of such a powerful order as the Jesuits, of whom we had lived in dread, ever since we had read the female Jesuit. Whether this last idea suggested what my mother said next, I can't tell. We did know the female Jesuit's second cousin, so might be said to have literary connections. And from that the startling thought might spring up in my sister's mind, for, said she, Biddy, my name is Bridget, and no one but my sister calls me Biddy, suppose you write some account of Morton Hall. We have known much in our time of the Mortons, and it will be a shame if they pass away completely from men's memories while we can speak or write. I was pleased with the notion, I confess, but I felt ashamed to agree to it all at once, though even as I objected for modesty's sake, it came into my mind how much I had heard of the old place in its former days, and how it was, perhaps, all I could do now for the Mortons, under whom our ancestors had lived as tenants for more than three hundred years. So at last I agreed, and, for fear of mistakes, I showed it to Mr. Swinton, our young curate, who has put it quite in order for me. Morton Hall is situated about five miles from the centre of Drumble. It stands on the outskirts of a village, which, when the hall was built, was probably as large as Drumble in those days, and even I can remember when there was a long piece of rather lonely road, with high hedges on either side,
between Morton Village and Drumble. Now it is all street, and Morton seems but a suburb of the great town near. Our farm stood where Liverpool Street runs now, and people used to come to snipe shooting just where the Baptist Chapel is built. Our farm must have been older than the hall, for we had a date of 1460 on one of the crossbeams. My father was rather proud of this advantage, for the hall had no date older than 1554, and I remember his affronting Mrs Dawson the housekeeper by dwelling too much on this circumstance one evening when she came to drink tea with my mother, when Ethelinda and I were mere children. But my mother, seeing that Mrs Dawson would never allow that any house in the parish could be older than the hall, and that she was getting very warm, and almost insinuating that the side-bottoms had forged the date to disparage the squire's family and set themselves up as having the older blood, asked Mrs Dawson to tell us the story of old Sir John Morton before we went to bed. I slyly reminded my father that Jack, our man, was not always so careful as might be in housing the Alderney in good time in the autumn evenings. So he started up and went off to see after Jack, and Mrs Dawson and we drew nearer the fire to hear the story about Sir John. Sir John Morton had lived some time about the Restoration. The Mortons had taken the right side, so when Oliver Cromwell came into power, he gave away their lands to one of his Puritan followers, a man who had been but a praying, canting Scotch peddler till the war broke out, and Sir John had to go and live with his royal master at Bruges. The upstart's name was Carr, who came to live at Morton Hall, and, I'm proud to say, we, I mean our ancestors, led him a pretty life. He had hard work to get any rent at all from the tenantry, who knew their duty better than to pay it to a roundhead. If he took the law to them, the law officers fared so badly that they were shy of coming out to Morton, all along that lonely road I told you of, again. Strange noises were heard about the hall, which got the credit of being haunted. But as those noises were never heard before or since that Richard Carr lived there, I leave you to guess if the evil spirits did not know well over whom they had power, over schismatic rebels and no one else. They durst not trouble the Mortons, who were true and loyal and were faithful followers of King Charles in word and deed. At last old Oliver died, and folks did say that on that wild and stormy night his voice was heard high up in the air, where you could hear the flocks of wild geese, Skirl, crying out for his true follower Richard Carr to accompany him in the terrible chase the fiends were giving him before carrying him down to hell. Anyway, Richard Carr died within a week. Summoned by the dead or not, he went his way down to his master and his master's master. Then his daughter Alice came into possession. Her mother was somehow related to General Monk, who was beginning to come into power about that time. So, when Charles II came back to his throne, and many of the sneaking Puritans had to quit their ill-gotten land and turn to the right about, Alice Carr was still left at Morton Hall to queen it there. She was taller than most women, and a great beauty, I have heard, 
but for all her beauty she was a stern, hard woman. The tenants had known her to be hard in her father's lifetime, but now that she was the owner and had the power, she was worse than ever. She hated the Stuarts worse than ever her father had done, had calf's head for dinner every 30th of January, and when the first 29th of May came round, and every mother's son in the village gilded his oak leaves and wore them in his hat, she closed the windows of the great hall with her own hands, and sat throughout the day in darkness and mourning. People did not like to go against her by force, because she was a young and beautiful woman. It was said the king got her cousin, the Duke of Albemarle, to ask her to court, just as courteously as if she had been the Queen of Sheba, and King Charles, Solomon, praying her to visit him in Jerusalem. But she would not go, not she. She lived a very lonely life, for now the king had got his own again, no servant but her nurse would stay with her in the hall, and none of the tenants would pay her any money, for all that her father had purchased the lands from the Parliament, and paid the price down in good red gold. All this time Sir John was somewhere in the Virginian plantations, and the ships sailed from thence only twice a year. But his royal master had sent for him home, and home he came that second summer after the restoration. No one knew if Mistress Alice had heard of his landing in England or not. All the villagers and tenantry knew, and were not surprised, and turned out in their best dresses with great branches of oak to welcome him as he rode into the village one July morning, with many gay-looking gentlemen by his side, laughing and talking and making merry and speaking gaily and pleasantly to the village people. They came in on the opposite side to the Drumble Road. Indeed, Drumble was nothing of a place then, as I have told you. Between the last cottage in the village and the gates to the old hall, there was a shady part of the road where the branches nearly met overhead and made a green gloom. If you'll notice, when many people are talking merrily out of doors in sunlight, they will stop talking for an instant when they come into the cool green shade and either be silent for some little time or else speak graver and slower and softer. And so old people say those gay gentlemen did, for several people followed to see Alice Carr's pride taken down. They used to tell how the cavaliers had to bow their plumed hats in passing under the unlopped and drooping boughs. I fancy Sir John expected that the lady would have rallied her friends and got ready for a sort of battle to defend the entrance to the house. But she had no friends. She had no nearer relations than the Duke of Albemarle, and he was mad with her for having refused to come to court, and so save her estate according to his advice. Well, Sir John rode on in silence. The tramp of the many horses' feet and the clumping sound of the clogs of the village people were all that was heard. Heavy as the great gate was, they swung it wide on its hinges, and up they rode to the hall steps, where the lady stood in her close plain Puritan dress, her cheeks one crimson flush, her great eyes flashing fire, and no one behind her, or with her, or near her, or to be seen, but the old trembling nurse catching at her gown in pleading terror. Sir John was taken aback. 
He could not go out with swords and warlike weapons against a woman. His very preparations for forcing an entrance made him ridiculous in his own eyes. And he well knew, in the eyes of his gay scornful comrades too. So he turned him round about and bade them stay where they were, while he rode close to the steps and spoke to the young lady. And there they saw him, hat in hand, speaking to her, and she, lofty and unmoved, holding her own, as if she had been a sovereign queen with an army at her back. What they said no one heard, but he rode back very grave and much changed in his look, though his grey eye showed more hawk-like than ever, as if seeing the way to his end, though as yet afar off. He was not one to be jested with before his face, so when he professed to have changed his mind, and not to wish to disturb so fair a lady in possession, he and his cavaliers rode back to the village inn, and roistered there all day, and feasted the tenantry, cutting down the branches that had incommoded them in their morning's ride, to make a bonfire on the village green, in which they burnt a figure, which some called Old Knoll, and others Richard Carr. And it might do for either, folk said, for unless they had given it the name of a man, most people would have taken it for a forked log of wood. But the lady's nurse told the villagers afterwards, that Mistress Alice went in from the sunny hall steps into the chill house shadow, and sat her down and wept, as her poor faithful servant had never seen her do before, and could not have imagined her proud young lady ever doing. All through that summer's day she cried, and if for very weariness she ceased for a time, and only sighed, as if her heart were breaking, they heard through the upper windows, which were open because of the heat, the village bells ringing merrily through the trees, and bursts of choruses to gay cavalier songs, all in favour of the Stuarts. All the young lady said was, once or twice, Oh God, I am very friendless! And the old nurse knew it was true, and could not contradict her, and always thought, as she said long after, that such weary weeping showed there was some great sorrow at hand. I suppose it was the dreariest sorrow that ever a proud woman had, but it came in the shape of a gay wedding. How the village never knew! The gay gentleman rode away from Morton the next day as lightly and carelessly as if they had attained their end, and Sir John had taken possession and by and by the nurse came timorously out to market in the village, and Mistress Alice was met in the woodwalks, just as grand and as proud as ever in her ways, only a little more pale and a little more sad. The truth was, as I have been told, that she and Sir John had each taken a fancy to each other in that parley they held on the hall steps. She, in the deep wild way in which she took the impressions of her whole life, deep down as if they were burnt in. Sir John was a gallant-looking man, and had a kind of foreign grace and courtliness about him. The way he fancied her was very different, a man's way, they tell me. She was a beautiful woman to be tamed, and made to come to his beck and call, and perhaps he read in her softening eyes that she might be won, and so all legal troubles about the possession of the estate come to an end, in an easy, pleasant manner. He came to stay with friends in the neighbourhood, 
he was met in her favourite walks with his plumed hat in his hand, pleading with her, and she looking softer and far more lovely than ever. And lastly, the tenants were told of the marriage then nigh at hand. After they were wedded, he stayed for a time with her at the hall, and then off back to court. They do say that her obstinate refusal to go with him to London was the cause of their first quarrel. But such fierce strong wills would quarrel the first day of their wedded life. She said that the court was no place for an honest woman, but surely Sir John knew best, and she might have trusted him to take care of her. However, he left her all alone, and at first she cried most bitterly, and then she took to her old pride, and was more haughty and gloomy than ever. By and by she found out hidden conventicles, and as Sir John never stinted her of money, she gathered the remnants of the old Puritan party about her, and tried to comfort herself with long prayers, snuffled through the nose, for the absence of her husband. But it was of no use. Treat her as he would, she loved him still with a terrible love. Once, they say, she put on her waiting-maid's dress and stole up to London to find out what kept him there, and something she saw or heard that changed her altogether, for she came back as if her heart was broken. They say that the only person she loved with all the wild strength of her heart had proved false to her, and if so, what wonder! At the best of times she was but a gloomy creature, and it was a great honour for her father's daughter to be wedded to a Morton. She should not have expected too much. After her despondency came her religion. Every old Puritan preacher in the country was welcome at Morton Hall. Surely that was enough to disgust Sir John. The Mortons had never cared to have much religion, but what they had had been good of its kind hitherto. So, when Sir John came down, wanting a gay greeting and a tender show of love, his lady exhorted him and prayed over him and quoted the last Puritan text she had heard at him. And he swore at her and at her preachers and made a deadly oath that none of them should find harbour or welcome in any house of his. She looked scornfully back at him and said she had yet to learn in what county of England the house he spoke of was to be found. But in the house her father purchased, and she inherited, all who preached the gospel should be welcome. Let kings make what laws, and kings' minions swear what oaths they would. He said nothing to this, the worst sign for her. But he set his teeth at her, and in an hour's time he rode back to the French witch that had beguiled him. Before he went away from Morton, he set his spies. He longed to catch his wife in his fierce clutch and punish her for defying him. She had made him hate her with her puritanical ways. He counted the days till the messenger came, splashed up to the top of his deep leather boots, to say that my lady had invited the canting puritan preachers of the neighbourhood to a prayer meeting and a dinner and a night's rest at her house. Sir John smiled as he gave the messenger five gold pieces for his pains, and straight took post-horses, and rode long days till he got to Morton. 
and only just in time, for it was the very day of the prayer meeting. Dinners were then at one o'clock in the country. The great people in London might keep late hours and dine at three in the afternoon or so, but the Mortons, they always clung to the good old ways, and as the church bells were ringing twelve when Sir John came riding into the village, he knew he might slacken bridle, and, casting one glance at the smoke which came hurrying up, as if from a newly mended fire, just behind the wood, where he knew the hall kitchen chimney stood, Sir John stopped at the smithy, and pretended to question the smith about his horse's shoes. But he took little heed of the answers, being more occupied by an old serving-man from the hall, who had been loitering about the smithy half the morning, as folk thought afterwards, to keep some appointment with Sir John. When their talk was ended, Sir John lifted himself straight in his saddle, cleared his throat, and spoke out aloud. "'I grieve to hear your lady is so ill.' The smith wondered at this, for all the village knew of the coming feast at the hall. The spring chickens had been bought up, and the cane lambs killed, for the preachers in those days, if they fasted, they fasted, if they fought, they fought, if they prayed, they prayed, sometimes for three hours at a standing. And if they feasted, they feasted, and knew what good eating was, believe me. My lady ill, said the smith, as if he doubted the old prim serving-man's word. And the latter would have chopped in with an angry asseveration. He had been at Worcester, and fought on the right side. But Sir John cut him short. My lady is very ill, good Master Fox. It touches her here, continued he, pointing to his head. I am come down to take her to London, where the king's own physician shall prescribe for her. And he rode slowly up to the hall. The lady was as well as ever she had been in her life, and happier than she had often been, for in a few minutes some of those whom she esteemed so highly would be about her. Some of those who had known and valued her father, her dead father to whom her sorrowful heart turned in its woe as the only true lover and friend she had ever had on earth. Many of the preachers would have ridden far, was all in order in their rooms and on the table in the great dining parlour. She had got into restless hurried ways of late. She went round below, and then she mounted the great oak staircase, to see if the tower bedchamber was all in order for old Master Hilton, the oldest among the preachers. Meanwhile, the maidens below were carrying in mighty cold rounds of spiced beef, quarters of lamb, chicken pies, and all such provisions, when suddenly, they knew not how, they found themselves each seized by strong arms, their aprons thrown over their heads after the manner of a gag, and themselves borne out of the house onto the poultry-green behind, where, with threats of what worse might befall them, they were sent with many a shameful word. Sir John could not always command his men, many of whom had been soldiers in the French wars, back into the village. They scudded away like frightened hares. My lady was strewing the white-headed preacher's room with the last year's lavender, and stirring up the sweet-pot on the dressing-table when she heard a step on the echoing stairs. It was no measured tread of any Puritan. It was the clang of a man-of-war coming nearer and nearer with loud, rapid strides. 
She knew the step. Her heart stopped beating, not for fear, but because she loved Sir John even yet. And she took a step forward to meet him, and then stood still and trembled, for the flattering false thought came before her that he might have come yet in some quick impulse of reviving love, and that his hasty step might be prompted by the passionate tenderness of a husband. But when he reached the door, she looked as calm and indifferent as ever. "'My lady,' said he, "'you are gathering your friends to some feast. "'May I know who are thus invited to revel in my house? "'Some graceless fellows, I see, "'from the store of meat and drink below, "'wine-bibbers and drunkards, I fear.' "'But by the working glance of his eye "'she saw that he knew all, "'and she spoke with a cold distinctness. "'Master Ephraim Dixon, "'Master Zerub Babel Hopkins,' Master help me or I perish Perkins, and some other godly ministers come to spend the afternoon in my house. He went to her, and in his rage he struck her. She put up no arm to save herself, but reddened a little with the pain, and then, drawing her neckerchief on one side, she looked at the crimson mark on her white neck. It serves me right, she said. I wedded one of my father's enemies one of those who would have hunted the old man to death. I gave my father's enemy house and lands when he came as a beggar to my door. I followed my wicked wayward heart in this, instead of minding my dying father's words. Strike again and avenge him yet more. But he would not, because she bade him. He unloosed his sash and bound her arms tight, tight together and she never struggled or spoke. Then, pushing her so that she was obliged to sit down on the bedside. Sit there, he said, and hear how I will welcome the old hypocrites you have dared to ask to my house, my house, and my ancestor's house, long before your father, a canting peddler, hawked his goods about and cheated honest men. And opening the chamber window, right above those hall steps, where she had awaited him in her maiden beauty scarce three short years ago, he greeted the company of preachers as they rode up to the hall with such terrible, hideous language. My lady had provoked him past all bearing, you see, that the old men turned round aghast and made the best of their way back to their own places. Meanwhile, Sir John's serving men below had obeyed their master's orders. They had gone through the house, closing every window, every shutter, and every door, but leaving all else just as it was, the cold meats on the table, the hot meats on the spit, the silver flagons on the sideboard, all just as if they were ready for a feast. And then Sir John's head servant, he that I spoke of before, came up and told his master all was ready. "'Is the horse and pillion all ready?' then you and I must be my lady's tire-women. And as it seemed to her, in mockery, but in reality with a deep purpose, they dressed the helpless woman in her riding things all awry, and, strange and disorderly, Sir John carried her downstairs, and he and his man bound her on the pillion, and Sir John mounted before. The man shut and locked the great house door, 
and the echoes of the clang went through the empty hall with an ominous sound. "'Throw the key,' said Sir John, "'deep into the mere yonder. My lady may go seek it if she lists, when next I set her arms at liberty. Till then I know whose house Morton Hall shall be called.' "'Sir John, it shall be called the devil's house, and you shall be his steward.' But the poor lady had better have held her tongue for Sir John only laughed, and told her to rave on. As he passed through the village with his serving-men riding behind, the tenantry came out and stood at their doors and pitied him for having a mad wife, and praised him for his care of her, and of the chance he gave her of amendment by taking her up to be seen by the king's physician. But somehow the hall got an ugly name. The roast and boiled meats, the ducks, the chickens, had time to drop into dust before any human being now dared to enter in, or indeed had any right to enter in, for Sir John never came back to Morton, and as for my lady, some said she was dead, and some said she was mad and shut up in London, and some said Sir John had taken her to a convent abroad. "'And what did become of her?' asked we, creeping up to Mrs. Dawson, "'Nay, how should I know?' "'But what do you think?' we asked pertinaciously. "'I cannot tell. "'I have heard that after Sir John was killed at the Battle of the Boyne, "'she got loose and came wandering back to Morton, to her old nurse's house. "'But indeed, she was mad then, out and out, "'and I've no doubt Sir John had seen it coming on. "'She used to have visions and dream dreams, "'and some thought her a prophetess, and some thought her fairly crazy.' What she said about the Mortons was awful. She doomed them to die out of the land and their house to be razed to the ground. While peddlers and hucksters, such as her own people, her father had been, should dwell where the knightly Mortons had once lived. One winter's night she strayed away and the next morning they found the poor crazy woman frozen to death in Drumble Meeting House Yard and the Mr Morton who had succeeded to Sir John had her decently buried where she was found by the side of her father's grave. We were silent for a time. And when was the old hall opened, Mrs Dawson, please? Oh, when the Mr Morton, our Squire Morton's grandfather, came into possession. He was a distant cousin of Sir John's, a much quieter kind of man. He had all the old rooms opened wide and aired and fumigated, and the strange fragments of musty food were collected and burnt in the yard. But somehow that old dining parlour had always a charnel-house smell, and no one ever liked making merry in it, thinking of the grey old preachers whose ghosts might even then be scenting the meats afar off, and trooping unbidden to a feast that was not that of which they were balked. I was glad for one when the squire's father built another dining-room, and no servant in the house will go an errand into the old dining parlour after dark, I can assure ye. I wonder if the way the last Mr Morton had to sell his land to the people at Drumble had anything to do with old Lady Morton's prophecy, said my mother musingly. Not at all, said Mrs Dawson sharply. My lady was crazy, and her words not to be minded. I should like to see the cotton spinners of Drumble offer to purchase land from the squire. Besides, there's a strict entail now, 
They can't purchase the land if they would. A set of trading peddlers indeed. I remember Ethelinda and I looked at each other at this word, peddlers, which was the very word she had put into Sir John's mouth when taunting his wife with her father's low birth and calling. We thought, we shall see. Alas, we have seen. Soon after that evening, our good old friend Mrs. Dawson died. I remember it well, because Ethelinda and I were put into mourning for the first time in our lives. A dear little brother of ours had died only the year before, and then my father and mother had decided that we were too young, that there was no necessity for their incurring the expense of black frocks. We mourned for the little delicate darling in our hearts, I know, and to this day I often wonder what it would have been to have had a brother. But when Mrs. Dawson died, it became a sort of duty we owed to the squire's family to go into black, and very proud and pleased Ethelinda and I were with our new frocks. I remember dreaming Mrs. Dawson was alive again, and crying because I thought my new frock would be taken away from me. But all this has nothing to do with Morton Hall. When I first became aware of the greatness of the squire's station in life, his family consisted of himself, his wife, a frail delicate lady, his only son, little master, as Mrs. Dawson was allowed to call him, the young squire, as we in the village always termed him. His name was John Marmaduke. He was always called John, and after Mrs. Dawson's story of the old Sir John, I used to wish he might not bear that ill-omened name. He used to ride through the village in his bright scarlet coat, his long, fair, curling hair falling over his lace collar, and his broad black hat and feather shading his merry blue eyes. Ethelinda and I thought then, and I always shall think, there never was such a boy. He had a fine high spirit too of his own, and once horse-whipped a groom twice as big as himself, who had thwarted him. To see him and Miss Phyllis go tearing through the village on their pretty Arabian horses, laughing as they met the west wind, and their long golden curls flying behind them, you would have thought them brother and sister rather than nephew and aunt. For Miss Phyllis was the squire's sister, much younger than himself. Indeed, at the time I speak of, I don't think she could have been above seventeen, and the young squire, her nephew, was nearly ten. I remember Mrs. Dawson sending for my mother and me up to the hall that we might see Miss Phyllis dressed ready to go with her brother to a ball given at some great lord's house to Prince William of Gloucester, nephew to good old George the Third. When Mrs. Elizabeth, Mrs. Morton's maid, saw us at tea in Mrs. Dawson's room, she asked Ethelinda and me if we would not like to come into Miss Phyllis's dressing-room and watch her dress. And then she said, if we could promise to keep from touching anything, she would make interest for us to go. We would have promised to stand on our heads, and would have tried to do so too to earn such a privilege. So in we went, and stood together, hand in hand, up in a corner, out of the way, feeling very red and shy, and hot, till Miss Phyllis put us at our ease by playing all manner of comical tricks, just to make us laugh, 
which at last we did outright, in spite of all our endeavours to be grave, lest Mrs. Elizabeth should complain of us to my mother. I recollect the scent of the maréchal powder, with which Miss Phyllis's hair was just sprinkled, and how she shook her head like a young colt to work the hair loose, which Mrs. Elizabeth was straining up over a cushion. Then Mrs. Elizabeth would try a little of Mrs. Morton's rouge, and Miss Phyllis would wash it off with a wet towel, saying that she liked her own paleness better than any perfumer's colour. And when Mrs. Elizabeth wanted just to touch her cheeks once more, she hid herself behind the great armchair, peeping out with her sweet merry face, first at one side and then at another, till we all heard the squire's voice at the door, asking her, if she was dressed, to come and show herself to Madam, her sister-in-law. For as I said, Mrs. Morton was a great invalid, and unable to go to any grand parties like this. We were all silent in an instant, and even Mrs. Elizabeth thought no more of the rouge, but how to get Miss Phyllis's beautiful blue dress on quick enough. She had cherry-coloured knots in her hair, and her breast-knots were of the same ribbon. Her gown was open in front to a quilted white silk shirt. We felt very shy of her as she stood there fully dressed. She looked so much grander than anything we had ever seen, and it was like a relief when Mrs. Elizabeth told us to go down to Mrs. Dawson's parlour, where my mother was sitting all this time. Just as we were telling how merry and comical Miss Phyllis had been, in came a footman. "'Mrs. Dawson,' said he, "'the squire bids me to ask you to go with Mrs. Sidebottom "'into the west parlour to have a look at Miss Morton before she goes.' "'We went too, clinging to my mother. "'Miss Phyllis looked rather shy as we came in "'and stood just by the door. "'I think we all must have shown her "'that we had never seen anything so beautiful as she was "'in our lives before, "'for she went very scarlet at our fixed gaze of admiration.' and to relieve herself she began to play all manner of antics, whirling round and making cheeses with her rich silk petticoat, unfurling her fan, a present for Madame to complete her dress, and peeping first on one side and then on the other, just as she had done upstairs, and then catching hold of her nephew and insisting that he should dance a minuet with her until the carriage came, which proposal made him very angry, as it was an insult to his manhood, at nine years old, to suppose he could dance. It was all very well for girls to make fools of themselves, he said, but it did not do for men. And Ethelinda and I thought we had never heard so fine a speech before. But the carriage came before we had half feasted our eyes enough, and the squire came from his wife's room to order the little master to bed and hand his sister to the carriage. I remember a good deal of talk about royal dukes and unequal marriages that night. I believe Miss Phyllis did dance with Prince William, and I have often heard that she bore away the bell at the ball, and that no one came near her for beauty and pretty merry ways. In a day or two after, I saw her scampering through the village, looking just as she did before she had danced with a royal duke. We all thought she would marry someone great, and used to look out for the lord who was to take her away. But poor madam died, and there was no one but Miss Phyllis to comfort her brother, 
for the young squire was gone away to some great school down south, and Miss Phyllis grew grave and reined in her pony to keep by the squire's side, when he rode out on his steady old mare in his lazy, careless way. We did not hear so much of the doings at the hall now Mrs. Dawson was dead, so I cannot tell how it was. But by and by there was talk of bills that were once paid weekly, being now allowed to run to quarter day. And then, instead of being settled every quarter day, they were put off to Christmas, and many said they had hard enough work to get their money then. A buzz went through the village that the young squire played high at college, and that he made away with more money than his father could afford. But when he came down to Morton, he was as handsome as ever, and I, for one, never believed evil of him, though I'll allow others might cheat him, and he never suspect it. His aunt was as fond of him as ever, and he of her. Many is the time I have seen them out walking together, sometimes sad enough, sometimes merry as ever. By and by, my father heard of sales of small pieces of land, not included in the entail, and at last things got so bad that the very crops were sold yet green upon the ground, for any price folks would give, so that there was but ready money paid. The squire at length gave way entirely, and never left the house, and the young master in London, and poor Miss Phyllis used to go about trying to see after the workmen and labourers, and save what she could. By this time she would be above thirty, Ethelinda and I were nineteen and twenty-one when my mother died, and that was some years before this. Well, at last the squire died. They do say of a broken heart as his son's extravagance, and though the lawyers kept it very close, it began to be rumoured that Miss Phyllis's fortune had gone too. Anyway, the creditors came down on the estate like wolves, it was entailed, and it could not be sold, but they put it into the hands of a lawyer who was to get what he could out of it, and have no pity for the poor young squire who had not a roof for his head. Miss Phyllis went to live by herself in a little cottage in the village at the end of the property, which the lawyer allowed her to have because he could not let it to anyone. It was so tumbled down and old. We never knew what she lived on, poor lady, but she said she was well in health which was all we durst ask about. She came to see my father just before he died, and he seemed made bold with the feeling that he was a dying man, so he asked what I had longed to know for many a year. Where was the young squire? He had never been seen in Morton since his father's funeral. Miss Phyllis said that he was gone abroad, but in what part he was then she herself hardly knew. Only she had a feeling that sooner or later he would come back to the old place where she should strive to keep a home for him whenever he was tired of wandering about and trying to make his fortune. Trying to make his fortune still? asked my father, his questioning eyes saying more than his words. Miss Phyllis shook her head with a sad meaning in her face, and we understood it all. He was at some French gaming table, if he was not at an English one. Miss Phyllis was right. It might be a year after my father's death, when he came back, looking old and grey and worn. 
He came to our door just after we had barred it one winter's evening. Ethelinda and I still lived at the farm, trying to keep it up and make it pay, but it was hard work. We heard a step coming up the straight pebble walk, and then it stopped right at our door, under the very porch, and we heard a man's breathing, quick and short. "'Shall I open the door?' said I. "'No, wait,' said Ethelinda, for we lived alone and there was no cottage near us. We held our breaths. There came a knock. "'Who's there?' I cried. "'Where does Miss Morton live? Miss Phyllis?' We were not sure if we should answer him, for she, like us, lived alone. "'Who's there?' again said I. "'Your master,' he answered, proud and angry. "'My name is John Morton. Where does Miss Phyllis live?' We had the door unbarred in a trice, and begged him to come in, to pardon our rudeness. We would have given him of our best, as was his due from us, but he only listened to the directions we gave him, to his aunts, and took no notice of our apologies. End of chapter 1 of Morton Hall